Collecting pavement data in newly industrialized and developing countries can pose special challenges for infrastructure asset managers and engineers. Richard Wicks joins the podcast to discuss lessons learned from collecting data on six continents. Transportation infrastructure. It's what keeps our economy moving and gets people safely where they need to go. But maintaining safe, reliable infrastructure assets is a complex challenge that requires innovative solutions. I'm Nick Frank from Agile Assets, and I'll be your guide as we navigate through the complex and evolving world of infrastructure asset management. My guest today is Richard Wicks. Richard is an internationally recognized expert in pavement condition measurement and road network management. He's currently the discipline leader for infrastructure measurement at the Australian Road Research Board, where he focuses on the collection and analysis of functional and structural pavement condition data for road managers. He also works closely with each of Australia's road agencies, as well as many international transportation organizations and research labs. Richard, thanks for being our guest today. G'day, Nick. It's good to be here. Thanks for asking me along. Awesome. Now, Richard, tell me a little bit about the Australian Research Road Research Board and what you do there. For those who aren't familiar with the Australian Road Research Board or just ARB or ARRB, ARRB for short, we're a non-for-profit research consultancy that was set up some 60 years ago by the Australian State Road Agencies to perform, as the name suggests, road-related research in areas such as transport economics, road safety, pavement performance, etc. These days, we do a little bit more. We look at sustainability, uh, mobility futures, driverless vehicles, and the like. I joined ARB as a young engineer back in 1990, and I guess I've had a long and varied career over those 32 years. Sounds like a long time, but it's gone really quick because there's been a lot of interesting things that have been involved in over that time. Much of it has revolved around automated pavement condition measurement from equipment development, implementation, validation and training to overseeing large pavement condition projects in Australia and overseas. I'm currently the discipline lead for infrastructure measurement across the various business groups at ARB, such as asset management, mobility futures, I mentioned before sustainability. But my main focus is on our infrastructure measurement group which provides data collection services across Australia and New Zealand predominantly these days. Well, fantastic. Well, I'm excited to have you on as a guest today, and I'm really excited to talk about some pavement data collection and diving into some asset management, especially in some developing countries. So mm -hmm. let's kind of kick this off by kind of going outside of your current country, which is Australia, and say, what are some of the projects that you've worked on around the world and, and around some other countries? Yeah, well, I've been a regular visitor to the US over the years, but you know, I've also spent a fair amount of time in countries a little closer to home, such as New Zealand, uh, Fiji, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, in the Asia Pacific, China, Bangladesh, Vietnam, India. And I've also been involved in some projects in Central and South America, Africa and Europe, which have required some travel to those states or nations, I should say. So you've seen a lot, you've been to a lot of countries and seen how the asset management and the pavement data collection is done. What would you say are some of the types of data collection being done in some of these newly industrialized and developing countries that you've worked in? 
Well, that's an interesting question because I think it's changed and continues to change with time as you know technology advances the capabilities of data equi uh, collection equipment also advances and they become more robust which is often needed in those developing nations because the conditions are pretty harsh compared to what you might find back at home but maybe i could illustrate it this way a little i remember my, my first trip outside of australia do some training what i didn't mention before is that uh used to build their own equipment and uh, sell that and use it to conduct a pavement connection survey. So on this occasion, we'd sold some equipment to uh, Indonesia for a, a project in Jakarta. But, you know, that's completely different to go into the capital of Jakarta, which is, uh, I just remember driving from the airport to the hotel, you know, there's three lanes, designated lanes, but there's like five lanes of traffic, people just weaving in and out of like it was organized chaos and you know after being there for two or three weeks i understood it needed to be like this otherwise people wouldn't get anywhere it'd be permanent gridlock but anyway getting back to the project we'd supplied a couple of three laser profilers so basically all they could do back then was measure iri or a roughness statistic of, of the uh, the pavements around jakarta and then we could because we had three lasers we would also report a rut index now for that project also they had engaged another company that provided falling weight deflectometers so they were doing some strength testing as well so that wasn't too much there's only two or three parameters no cameras in those days there's no gps nothing like that but having said that just a few years later we were engaged in a big project where we actually surveyed the majority of the whole of indonesia and if you know indonesia it's it's not just one country well it's one country but it consists of several islands a couple of major islands and then a lot of smaller ones too so logistically pretty tough to get all around the country and certainly apart from the major city uh, and maybe bali and Denpasar, you know not that developed but in that four or five years before when we were first there in the mid 90s to um, around the year 2000 you know, the next time we came back, we were using equipment that, yeah, sure, measured roughness again, but this time the rutting was you know, being measured with a, a beam. You know, they were ultrasonic sensors, but instead of an index, we were having the whole, well, 2.4 metres of the road measured, which was a big improvement. It was full of digital imaging capability, you know, multiple cameras. Uh, we had um, road geometry measurement as well, and we had spatial uh, collection as well, not just linearly. So you can see in just that period of four or five years, there was quite a change in what we were able to provide as a service and what, what others could do as well. And, you know, that's just progressed. Now, a, a lot of developing nations uh, are actually uh, quite similar to, to you know, and the data they collect and how they use it is quite similar to what we do in, say, more developed countries because they've really jumped on board. Uh, you know, but that's having said that, that's often not for the whole country in the rural areas. It might focus on toll roads that are now built and the toll road operators, you know, really manage those networks uh, well and collect data. But if I had to, again, getting back to your original question, if I had to name a couple of different parameters that are of major interest, I, I have to say the roughness or the, how right and the smooth the ride is at the pavements, rutting is a good one. And then with pavement defects, people are particularly interested in things like potholes and, and cracking. You mentioned that there was a, the gap in time and the 
mass amount of kind of progression and new technology that was used just in a handful of years. Mm -hmm. Is that regular to wait that long? Or what is the typical frequency of the data collection in those regions? I think about this question, and I think, again, it varies. It, it's not, not the same. You know, my experience and, you know, others have had more experience or some have had less, but from what I've seen, it often is that one of these projects involves getting, uh, measuring the condition of the, the whole network for the first time and then to give that base level. And then it would appear to me that sometimes that's it for, for quite a while uh, until, un unless maybe people jump on board within that country and are really keen to see that continue. And, you know, some of those uh, developing nations do have um, organisations now that uh, have embraced that technology. And as I said, you know, are, are regular users of it and have some gear that's not too different to what you'd see running around the roads here in Australia or in, in the US. But um, I, I do get the impression that sometimes it's one and done for quite a while. But, you know, having said that, we, we have some states here in Australia, they don't do their networks every year. They might do it over a two or three year period, uh, sometimes a little more. So it's, you know, it, it depends what you want to do and what you want to achieve. And certainly the more data you have and the more often you collect it, the better idea you have of the condition of your network and how it's deteriorating. And, you know, and probably we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail. You need to know that if you're going to manage that network, you really have got to be able to measure it and know what condition it's in. And as a data guy, you are more than aware that good data in is good data out. You have to import good data for it to be efficiently used on the other side. So what quality control and assurance measures are used in these developing regions to verify that quality of data? Yeah, I, I think they do this pretty well. Again, from my own experience, it's, it's probably a stepped approach, Nick, because when we get on the ground, if it's a, it's a big survey and it's going to take, you know, a year and a half to cover a whole country or, or even six months, you know, we, we'll have an initial um, validation testing where we'll set up test sites. So we'll actually take, bring in ground truthing um, devices that will give us reference um, readings that we can then run the automated gear over. It might be a walking profiler type of device to measure the roughness of the road. Then we'll compare that to, to what the, um, the bit of equipment, the inertial profile that we use. It will assess the, uh, the rut to how it measures the rutting. We'll look at the accuracy of the uh, spatial measurement, the linear measurement, and the distance calibrations. So at the start, we, we make sure that the equipment is measuring what it wants to measure because often the equipment might be shipped in uh, from other countries or it might be built uh, within the country. So you've got to make sure that it's, it's doing what it's meant to do. So that's part of it. Then in the field, uh, it's, it's very important that we do daily checks on the equipment, but even at the end of the day, what we like to do is look at the data that's been collected. Now, it's, it's not that we process everything up and put it into a database and crunch every number, but we will look at the fact that, all right, we know we collected 200 kilometers today. Uh, we're taking an image of the, the pavement or the assets alongside the pavement every 10 meters. So we, we expect to have whatever that works out into a number of images. So, you know, we, we, we can do the sums and say, all right, yeah, 200 Ks, 200, I've got 100 per 
kilometer and that's so two twenty thousand images i'm not sure about my maths there but you know so yeah we've, we've got enough images um you know what's the size of the data um because you know once you leave that area especially in remote areas and this this happens in australia too because uh, most of australia is un, uninhabited you, you don't want to leave and then three or four days later find out that the data you collected was incomplete you didn't collect all the roads and then have to go back in, in some of these developing nations, you know, you, you might have changed, uh, jumped to another island. You, you know, you have to, it's just, and you might have to wait four days for a ferry to get back. It's, it's, it's things like this. So you do the, the most you can to ensure that the, you've collected the data and the quality is as good as possible. But really, you know, it's only once you get it back to the processing team and they look at it, that you might be able to get final sign off. And, um, and this is one, good thing that if, if you do have existing data from that network, we always like to do like a historical check. That, and it's a reasonableness check because things change. And, you know, so a lot of the surveys we've done too are on, on unsealed networks. So they, they can change with a heavy downpour of, you know, rain and, and, and traffic and the like. So you need to make some judgment calls. But certainly for sealed pavements, uh, we, if you've got that historical data, you can look for the trends and, and see that, yeah, look, that, that's similar to what it was last time. So I, I'm feeling pretty good about that. And then so whatever decisions are made based on that data through your asset management system, pavement management system, you can feel pretty sure that they're giving good outcomes. You alluded to it a little bit in your last answer about, you know, maybe having to wait four days for a ferry to get to the other island to recollect your data. Along with that, what are some of the other challenges that you've faced when doing this pavement data collection in these other countries? Yeah, I, I think, you know, one, one of the big ones is the language, because you, you can't go into a foreign country and just assume that everyone speaks English. And, and I just think it's wrong, actually, to, to, to do that as well. So as an example, um, around the time in the 90s as well, it was uh, also, uh, we, we did a project in, in China and it wasn't one of your main, it wasn't Shanghai or Beijing, it was actually a little rural province. And, you know, it was obviously not a lot of Westerners went there because, you know, we'd walk through the shops and we'd have a little crowd following us because, <laughs> you know, what are these guys doing here? We don't, we don't usually see them. But, you know, it, it was a, a lovely experience, but we had to work with that one through an interpreter. And often, you know, there's interpreters, uh, I, I feel for, for the lady who, who did it for us, because there's one thing having a conversation like this between you and me, interpreting that. And then when you're trying to train people or tell them how to use a bit of equipment and talk technical, uh, you know, that, that's, that's another story again. And just, just to maybe highlight it, there was this situation where we were doing... Um, validating the distance measurement of, of the, the gear. They'd built a really lovely um, new highway uh, through through the, the province. And so this organization was going to use a profiler to, to maintain it and manage it. Now we were doing a distance calibration. So we marked out a one kilometer site. Sorry, we're in metric, not, not in miles. But uh, so, you know, we, we measured it and the software actually uh, only displayed to two decimal points. So because of the rounding, you know, we, it still measured the kilometre correctly, but when you're in the car and looking at it, it would tick over a kilometre, maybe five metres or four metres before it actually got to the end point. 
and they're saying wrong 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 you know this is inaccurate and and the amount of time we tried to to explain this i said sorry no this this is still one kilometer it's just the rounding error and uh, what we'll do is in in those days you didn't have email you know we had to go back to the office we had to ring up the bulletin board that had set, been set up at arb uh, get one of the programmers to redo the software which was in dos in those days so no, no fancy windows or anything it's pretty rudimentary and you know and and then change it so you it displayed three decimal places and so we thought that was done and dusted and i thought we explained it and then when it came to the handover and we were meant to be going back to australia the next day and which which we did but it became a point of contention it said no no your accuracy is still wrong you know and 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 it was all due to probably a lack of being able to explain that exact exactly and you know it's, it's kind of looking back at it and it's, it's a bit of fun now but you know it just you just have to be careful and and you know you have to speak slowly uh you know clearly and you know usually it's it's not a problem we were fortunate when we worked in vietnam we did a big road safety project over there i i work in the office with a few vietnamese so you know and they're in the same field so we we're able to use them to you know look and manage the, the team over there to to uh, actually translate manuals and the like and you know otherwise you know my suggestion is you, you bring in someone who's uh, you know fluent in those languages especially if you have to not only for interpretation and, and correspondence but you know for using your training materials because i feel for some of of the people there uh you know they're getting everything in english and they've got minimal english it's it's very hard to do but it is is tough so language is a big one um thinking that you're often in remote locations you need to have enough spares with you for your equipment again you know we were in in malaysia and we had a small system set it we'd taken it with us as hand luggage it was a video system we were doing it like a reconnoiter of the the uh, the network we we're going to survey and anyway, as we were installing it in the vehicle, we blew the fuse. And, um, you know, it took us like five hours to go and find a, a fuse to replace. Whereas, you know, if we just packed a few spares. I remember my colleague who was managing that project, uh, he wasn't very happy. <laughs> and he couldn't understand why. Why didn't you pack spare fuses? You know, it sounds like normal to me. And, you know, until it happens to you, you don't often think about these things. So, you know, you need to, to, to think about that um the other thing is like we've had medical emergencies fortunately only once someone had appendicitis had to fly them out of uh, indonesia to to singapore for an operation so you know it's 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 yeah there are things that you want to to think about but um yeah it, it, they're not game breakers but it's it's handy if you you deal with them beforehand think about them beforehand yeah, language barrier is not one that many of the cities, counties, DOTs in the United <laughs> States have to face. Yes. Uh, maybe regional accents Fence, is one yep. they may have to, <laughs> to figure out. Uh, but that definitely is, is definitely a much more, especially if you're traveling internationally, a way more uh, a challenge that you definitely need to think about ahead in, in terms yeah. of, you know, trying to, to cross that, that language barrier. And one thing I would like to talk about as well is uh funding and how exactly these projects get funded you know who's funding them how long are they funded for uh you know just where does that funding come from yeah i think in again in my experience there's most or well, a lot of countries have aid agencies that offer aid to developing nations and the like 
here in Australia, we have AusAid or Australia Aid. I think they might have actually changed their name again. But the majority of jobs that I was involved with were World Bank funded. And, you know, the, and often with the road safety side of things, it was often the uh, global road safety facility that would do it. And actually, Bloomberg Philanthropies was involved as well. They donated money to uh, for a lot of these projects. But certainly for, for my experience, it was the World Bank uh, would do that. Um, and, you know, those jobs, a lot of them were just, uh, let's say, were the initial phase of a project that we were uh, involved with. But, you know, it was quite interesting in one occasion with the Vietnamese um, survey we did of their network. I went to a follow-up um, conference about a year later, and it, it, it kind of indicated there was some, uh, the survey showed that there was some work needed to improve the safety of their road network. But the delegate there was saying like, all right, we've seen that, but now we need funding to, to, to actually make make the changes you know where do we go who's going to do that but you know it's it's interesting now because there's uh, there's developing nations and there's developed nations and there's different levels so um even though it might have shown that you're you need some work you may not actually qualify to get that that funding now so you know you have to go to external sources or maybe you know the the the, the federal uh, of government of the country needs to uh, stump up some funds to do that but um, yeah, but but certainly uh, most of our projects were of limited time, whether that be from a, a month, six months, 12 months, 18 months, something like that. So you've touched on the types of payment data. You touched on the challenges of, of trying to collect the data, the funding sources now. So after the data is collected, how is it put to use specifically for decision making? Yeah, what we did, you know, we'd collected the data, we processed it, we'd often have to put it into a, let's call it a repository or a database. And then that was handed on to, to the client, or maybe it was another consultant for use. So, you know, the, the end goal was the same as it is for most, uh, you know, DOTs or Australian road agencies. Once we've got that information, we want to then use it to, to manage the road network and manage our funds predominantly. So, you know, we've got an X amount of dollars. How can we use that best? So now that we know what the, the condition of our network is, we can identify those locations uh, and, and um, come up with works programs and the like uh, to do it. So, you know, we, we, our role would often stop at the kind of the delivery of the, of the, the data and the numbers. Uh, but sometimes we're involved too in in uh, analyzing that they would model things you know hdm uh, was the big one that they were using for developing nations to uh, hdm3 hdm4 to come up with the the, the outcomes that were, were needed and of course our companies like your own and others you know can take that information and you know do great things with it and and help help them out in in, in working what's best bang for their buck yeah, the full asset, the life cycle of the asset management life cycle. Uh, good, good plug there. Uh, thanks for that. I didn't even have to do it. I'll, I'll, I'll let you do it. Um, Richard, are there training or certificate programs that can help transportation agencies collect as high quality data and, and implement effective payment management practices? I think there's a lot of documented information around that can be used these days. But 
I think one of the, the big things with a lot of our projects uh, that we were involved in uh, involved developing a local capability. So the, the idea was that, all right, you might come in as a, as a consultant or a provider of equipment or doing the, the service. You need people on the ground. You, you can't do it without them and you need to train them. So part of the process was like being able to take your knowledge, give it to them, and so that they could then undertake the, the process in the, in the future. So this, this yeah, so training was always a large part of it. And, and, you know, in some of the contracts, that was very important. You, ha you have to develop local capability because that's what we want to do. We want to see the, the people within the country being able to do this so they don't have to rely on outsiders to do it. So that, that was one of the big things which I really enjoyed, actually, you know, knowing that you could impart knowledge to, to engineers um, predominantly working in these countries and that, that they would continue on the work in the future. So, you know, and you, you could run a little, few little tests on them, you train them. Sometimes we give them a certificate, uh, if you like, that, you know, you, you've passed the Richard Wicks ARB course training, of co training, you know, but um, it probably didn't mean too much. But, you know, that they got to a proficiency level. So, but the, the, the important thing, I think, too, with that was that you needed to do some follow-up work as well, because, you, you know, you I'm the same. Someone shows me how to do something once or twice. It's you know, and you don't do it very often. You you forget. There's a lot to be be done. And what advice would you have for people who are working in transportation in developing in foreign countries to help improve their processes or to just take that first step towards even trying to you know add their new roads, bridges, structures, whatever it is they're trying to do? Yeah, I you know some of the learnings. I would have is is you know before you, you need someone on the ground to help you out it's not like working in your own state or the like where you know the roads and the language is is okay you know what needs to be done in foreign countries you need to work with an organization who's based there unless you're a big company and you have offices there you need to have a footing on the ground so uh, you, you need to do your research. You know, you need to familiarize yourself with the local customs, the weather, the, the lifestyle. Um, you know, working in Muslim countries, like you might think that you're going to go over there and work a five-day week, but on, on the Friday, they'll go to worship at the mosque. So you're not going to get a full day in there. You, you've got to be respectful of these things. And knowing these things ahead of time can be a very beneficial you know, I always found learning a few words in the local language too, pretty endearing to those that you work with. Um, I, I was just thinking about this the other day and um, I'm, I'm going back to that time in Jakarta. And I remember I used to say, Namaseya Richard, Siapa Namamu, which just means my name's Richard, what's, what's your name? And then uh, when we say goodbye, it was Sampai Karamulagi, my Bahasa Indonesian so accent's probably not great, but you know it was it was just good, just saying a few words, and 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 you were you know showing that you were interested in them and learning a bit of that their language, and you know you, you've got to ex realize that things aren't the same as what they are in in your country, uh, and you need to be flexible. Just as an, another example, we did a, a project in Fiji, and, and that was that was pretty remarkable. I remember. We were surveying the a high road, and you got to look down at the beaches and the coral and everything. And I'm thinking, wow, this 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 is paradise, great place to work. And you know, but when it came to 
doing the work, you know, all right, we, we're going to organize. It's a 9 a.m. start tomorrow. Don't expect everyone to rock up at, at one minute to nine or nine. They might be a little later. You know, the, the, the time is a little bit more flexible there. So, you know, you can't, you know, just say you've got to be respectful of that. And it works out really well. When, when you, and, and so don't try and force your work practices on them. Understanding that there's going to be a language barrier, there could be a cultural barrier, and just being flexible with yes. other people's and uh, their culture is a, a really important trait and skill and patience level to have when you're working on these projects. Uh, Richard, is there anything else that we didn't touch on that that you'd want to add? Yeah, I've seen a lot of lot of things that I through work that I'd never seen thought I'd see, and you know. When you're doing these surveys, you actually get into areas that you know, then they're not holiday destinations. And sure, it might be rough, and the hotel's not what you're used to, and uh, it's long days. But you get to see things that most people don't. And so, I, you know, to me, it's all em embrace it, get to know the culture, uh, enjoy it. Richard Wicks, the National Discipline Leader of Infrastructure Measurement, the Australian Road Research Board. Thanks for being our guest today. More than welcome. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me, Nick. And if you want to learn more about transportation strategies that save time, money, and lives, head on over to agileassets.com. Once again, thank you to Richard Wicks for sharing his expertise with us today. I'm Nick Frank. Join us again next month for another edition of Move Your Assets.